This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. In a society where unconscious bias, microaggressions, institutionalized racism, and systemic injustices are deeply ingrained, healing is an ongoing process. Author, meditation teacher, and law professor Rhonda McGee teaches that in order to have the difficult conversations required for working toward racial justice, inner work is essential. In this episode, CIIS Assistant Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Damali Robertson, has a conversation with Rhonda about her life and work, as well as her latest book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, in which Rhonda shares ways mindfulness can heal ourselves and transform our communities. This episode was recorded during a live online event on September 22nd, 2021. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. I am so excited to be here and in conversation with you tonight, Rhonda. How are you? Hello, hello, and the excitement is mutual. I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, and I'm doing all right. I'm here in San Francisco. And um, thanks so much for being in conversation with me. Absolutely. Um, I am just so grateful for you, your body of work, um, all the contributions you've made to the field of mindfulness, racial justice. And so we're going to dig into your book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. We're going to talk about mindfulness and the ways that people, we can support one another with that inner work that's so foundational. So I have tons of questions for you, and I feel like I really just want to jump in uh, to ask you, when did you begin a formal mindfulness practice, and what got you started? Hmm. So I I guess I began my formal mindfulness practice. Um, 1993 is the year that comes to mind as one important date because that was the year that I finished law school, the year that I moved permanently from Virginia to California, you know, studied for, took the bar, and then had a period of time where I was waiting for my results, but also waiting for the date for my job to start. In other words, I had a period of time where I actually could relax. And I, the first thing I realized was I was completely unable to, I was not practiced. I did not know how to relax. I had been like on the go, you know, studying and trying to achieve and right, trying to take advantage of the opportunities that prior generations of people who look like me, by the way, who grew up in the South as I did, taking advantage of the opportunities that prior generations didn't have. Mm. So really I was, um, finding myself in need of support for being able to, you know, reclaim my attention and calm my, you know, my nerves a little bit. And so I started reading books and happened to find a book that opened up a doorway into um, formal meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And so it was first, for me, it was first just reading and, and really it's practicing at home, like many people who are on this or listening to my voice might have done themselves, just reading something, hearing something 
at that time, there were not a lot of podcasts or other things like that. But so I just read and put the book down and tried to practice. And even that felt a little bit like a relief. And so I continued to pursue uh, other opportunities to experiment with meditation from there. But you know, when I think about that question, I also think about the fact that I had informal training in some sort of practice for centering that I observed in the life of my grandmother, who um, many of you may have, if you've read my book, you may have heard me tell this story before, but my grandmother um, was a person who had been called to the ministry so that every day um, of the time that I spent as a little girl in her presence, I saw her get up before dawn and spend time in her room in a, what I later learned was like a centering prayer practice, um, prayer and then studying scripture and really just getting clear on her purpose and value before going out and doing hard work in the world. You know, she cleaned houses for other people. She didn't have a glamorous job like mm -hmm. I do by comparison, right? Mm -hmm. so, so those, when I think about both the entry to what I call mindfulness meditation, I think of those trainings that I read about which by the way, were coming from a Hindu tradition, I will just name. Um, mm -hmm. It was a book I remember reading, it was called the Bhagavad Gita for Daily Living. And I say that to name that a lot of these things that we call mindfulness are, as we know, translations of practices that have been lovingly delivered in this multicultural context that we call the United States of America right now, right? Um, by people who have inherited and carried these practices over generations. Um, and so I owe, I feel I'm just naming the debt of gratitude that I think I know I owe to people who um, from Asian heritages, South Asian, uh, Indian heritage, in particular, the first book that I read. But I know that a lot of the things that I've been privileged to study have been delivered to this context from different parts of Asia. So I, so, so that, and then, you know, Kinston, North Carolina, <laughs> and right. my grandmother's, you know, own centering practice, those are the roots for me. Yeah. And you know what? I love that you bring your grandmother in because I think, you know, we, we look at meditation and um, we think that's this particular practice, but what you just talked about her prayer was centering. Uh, people journaling is centering. Yes. Walking can be centering. There's so many things that we do on a daily basis that if we do it with a certain amount of intention is centering. So I just yes. love that you brought your grandmother into the room with us. Yeah. Um, because I remember watching my grandmother pray mm -hmm. um, too before she would uh, start her day as a teacher. And I thought to myself, as you said that, yeah, we more of us are practicing something mindful than we probably know. Exactly. And so becoming aware, right, that meta, that knowing what we know is, I think, an important insight. Uh, you know, it isn't necessarily about engaging in a brand new practice. Mm -hmm. It may be about just becoming more clear about what you have seen, observed, been exposed to that looks like if engaged in on a regular basis and in your experience, you know, from having done it or having witnessed it, it actually can help calm you, center you, support you in accessing your inherent power and inherent sense of belonging. 
whatever mm-hmm. can deliver you to that, uh, in my estimation, it can be a support for, you know, really moving more skillfully in the world, including addressing issues of race and racism more skillfully. Yeah, thank you so much, Rhonda. I mean, the truth is when I was reading your book, I was just nodding, you know, <laughs> along the way. I, I, I was saying to myself, you had me at hello, right? <laughs> I was like, yes, because I can, I can make the connection uh, in the ways that mindfulness clearly advances and supports racial justice work. I just wondered, though, as I was reading it, what about the folks who, you know, may not see themselves there yet? Like, there are people who are probably like, hmm, I don't know how this, how these two to go together. And I wondered if you could maybe say a little bit more to to someone who doesn't quite make the connection. Right. Well, you know, it's so interesting, Damali, um, that, you know, one of the aspects of my journey that I'm going to um, reflect on in response to this question is just having had conversations with people about the intersections between racial justice and activism work on the one hand, um, anti-racist, you know, managing bias, even DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion, on the one hand, and mindfulness on the other. Um, you know, nowadays people are hearing a little bit about this here or there. Um, but when I started this, this, <laughs> these, the connection had not been made, and even today. Um, I'm surprised by how often I'll have someone hear a conversation of mine um, and, and contact me or say to me, you know, I, I have studied mindfulness for many years. I have been trying to do anti-racism work or reading about it or trying to wake up to it or reckoning in the last couple of years. It never occurred to me to bring these two together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I think that when, so I think that when I'm uh, thinking about people who don't see the connection. I'm always curious about, well, what, what, what part of this does resonate? Because for some people it's, I understand mindfulness, but I don't see how it relates. Like I've been practicing mindfulness, I've been doing this, but I haven't seen racial justice work as part and parcel of my work in mindfulness. Or for other people, it could be, I'm, I've been doing racial, ju- I've been living with the consequences of being in a racist society for all my life, I've been do- or I've been doing activism work, and I'm not sure how mindfulness connects. So I'm always curious, really, what doorway people are coming in through. And from that place, you know, what I like to do is invite people to, from the place that they are entering the conversation, think about any difficulty that they've experienced along the way. And where is that difficulty? Hmm. And when reflecting on a particular story or particular experience, where then to ask if, in particular, if, if there's a way in which your identity, your social identity um, is something that you have suffered in, right? You, you felt some, you know, targeted by bias or you've witnessed people suffering through a form of their identities. And so when we start looking at how people have felt and experienced harm through identity, then I can open up a, a conversation about, you know, how my practices that allow you to pause, um, notice the thoughts, emotions, and sensations that travel with that story or that experience. Mm. And notice the sensation of breathing as you take maybe a conscious deep breath and just sense into how just the breath can support us in 
accessing, again, a capacity to inwardly restore or access a calm within a storm? And might that be a skill that we, or just an ability that we, any one of us might benefit from as we navigate a world in which identity-based harm is a feature, mm-hmm. not a bug, it's a feature of our society. So how, how might we draw on that? I often invite people to just do a breath, imagine experience. Unfortunately, sometimes I can pull it out of the news. I remember doing a podcast with someone some years ago, actually, and, and there had been a, sh- a shooting in the news that day. Mm. And there was a race aspect to it. And we talked about it. She hadn't heard about it. It came up in the conversation. And, and I said, let's pause. And right here, right now, imagine using a portable mindfulness practice to support us and being able to get back on track with this interview. Because I could feel the way in which she was getting right? Emotionally challenged by this news. And so that's that, you know, these, we have experiences all the time that give us a little bit to practice. And I always do, uh, uh, I often believe that it's less about convincing people intellectually and being evangelical about it, but it is an opportunity to ask people, well, let's experiment with it. What is it like? And what might a pausing and a breathing practice right here, right now offer as a support? Wow. And you know what? There's a couple of things you said there. A, I feel like people are so busy and you mentioned busyness at the top of our conversation. Mm-hmm. And that pause just sounds like it is the like the connector, the, the ability to stop and pause. And then there's a curiosity that you bring yeah. um, to the examples that you've given that I think also facilitate these types of mindful conversations but also the the relationship the trust building the safety necessary for some of these conversations at least that's what I'm hearing you say yeah exactly and also the kind of underlying care Mm -hmm. because I do think an ethic of care is for me at the root of mindfulness it's not always the first thing that people hear when they hear something about mindfulness right people hear about breathing and you know becoming more clear, clearing the mind and, you know, reclaiming attention, focusing, but underlying all of it. Um, I think uh, from all of that, I, all that I've been fortunate to learn about it is this invitation to kind of become more intimate with our own life experience mm-hmm. and more caring, right? Because, you know, this desire to mm-hmm. minimize suffering starting with ourselves. And then from there, maybe we can also, right, maximize our ability to minimize suffering for other people. But yeah, so there is that caring quality Mm. that I think is also a big part of it for me. Yeah. And, you know, I heard you say in an interview, uh, justice for me is what love looks like in public. And I love this. I, I, I heard you say it and I was like, yes, right. I mean, and so that takes us back to caring. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder, um, with this view of justice, if there is anything you could offer us, any insights mm-hmm. you could offer to how we get there. How, how do we, as this highly racialized society, get to a place where we can see justice as love? Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much for this question. And um because it's a profound one. And it invites me to say a couple of things just by way of Um, acknowledgement. You know, I think, again, we are all so privileged to inherit, to have inherited so much that supports us or that might support us 
in this kind of work. We just start turning more to it. And so that literal uh, definition of justice being what love looks like in public is one I've borrowed, learned, inherited from a philosopher and teacher, Cornell West, mm. who is one of our teachers in our public yes. discourse these days. But also it resonated for me because another one of them, I'm sure our mutual teachers, um, my and mine and Cornell and maybe others, you, you know, you maybe Martin Luther King Jr., who also, mm-hmm. when talking about justice, often, right, he spoke so eloquently and beautifully in a lot of less well-reported speeches and, and writings about, you know, the sort of, the sort of fierce quality of, of love that undergirds efforts to resist oppression. You know, mm-hmm. it's always about um, love as a, a, a kind of a way of thinking about um, justice insofar as it's about accessing a kind of a love power to come into confrontation with that which stands against the impulse we have to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, a lot of what he was talking to or speaking to is that which in that within each of us that actually does care when we see somebody suffering and that we can be trained and you know, trained out of responding to that altruistic impulse, you know, that sort of non-transactional care and concern for other fellow human beings that, that many of us know we're in touch with and some of us are, not, are kind of out of touch with. And so, um, I think the invitation of a lot of people like Martin Luther King, like even Colin Kaepernick now, he's Mm -hmm. quoted recently of saying, we resist out of love, right? The invitation to really understand that at the root of a lot of these efforts to fight oppression is this desire to see us all treated with the care and respect that and dignity that we deserve underlying the idea of human rights is this idea of innate inherent entitlement to a kind of basic dignity in terms of how we are met in the world. And so, you know, of course, when we think about justice, often we're not, what we're fighting is for that kind of dignity, respect, um, public caring treatment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of us, or even if it had at one point, we've been sort of trained out of it, I think almost coarsened to live in today's society. It's like everybody is, is so busy, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. We've all been struggling so much with, with so much, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our struggles aren't the same. But I'm just going to say, it seems to me that there's a lot of woundedness in all of us. and um, And yet, you know, part of our dominant culture is about patterns of dominance. That's what I, we've inherited. That's what slavery, enslavement was about. That's what, okay. you know, patterns of exclusion were about that uh, Asian American heritage folks experienced. That's what, you know, settler colonialism was about. We've inherited a lot of the energy of domination, which makes it hard to have your soft bellied, carbon based, yeah. in case, you know, your heart, right? out on your sleeve as they as they say but so so it's not easy to bring this sort of quality of love and care as justice uh, into public discourse 
But I think we just have to name it and keep claiming it. I think part of what how we fight any kind of oppression is to say, yeah, be that amen choir. Like, so I love the model when you're saying you're reading, you're like, yes, <laughs> um, yeah, because we, we need to hear each other affirm right. things that we actually do feel, but we don't hear lifted up enough. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but you know, we do what we can. We do what we can where we are. Yes. And I just appreciate you mentioning Dr. King. And I want to just bring him in one more time because I read, I heard your quote and then I went back to his letter from a Birmingham jail and read where he talked about justice being intentional. It's persistent. You know, I don't want to misquote him, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but he, he asked, you know, how much, uh, uh, how devoted are we to justice, you know, mm-hmm. in that letter? And, and he, I thought he felt a real urgency. So I, I really appreciate um, that you uh, mentioned Dr. King again, because I, I really was there uh, reading that letter again, um, inspired by your quote. So, yeah, okay. um, yeah. And that letter is so powerful, right? And so current in a way, because he's really oh, yeah. in a way saying, what I really need is for people who would say they stand with me, but are kind of silent. Yes. To stand up. And, yes. and again, speak and call forth you know, and, and, and stand with, don't just be silent, like silent, or you send me an email after, right, <laughs> stand up with me, take a stand, right, because silence um, is complicity. Yeah, and we really need that message as well. So many of his messages are just so resonant for, t- for today. Exactly. Thank you so much for that. Cause I just think, yes. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, in your book, you also speak about uh, racism and discrimination having a double edge. So it's hurting people on all sides, ultimately. Yeah. Um, anyone who's impacted, whether that is someone who is feeling the brunt or someone who is probably experiencing it from a more privileged place. So could you say some more about the ways mm-hmm. that you see this double edge and how racism hurts us all? Yeah. And, you know, it's so, you know, thank you for this question. It's um, reminding me that, yeah, number one, I've been trying to make this point and um, having conversations with folk to invite us to reflect on this. Because again, I will say that the way that I embrace the role of teaching about all of these things, there is this piece that's about me sharing my insight, but really it's very invitational. It's very much about like, let us look deeply and closely at our own lives. Let us have the courage, let us have space, let us find right places and spaces where we can be supported in just looking at what we already know. Um, because I think when we do that, we, we can see so many different stories. You know, a story that I tell, one of the first stories I tell in my books about, you know, my first, I think it is the first story really about my, my, my being a young girl in love with someone who was uh, from a family, white Southern family, racialized white, as I mm-hmm. say it, to underscore the way that it's a social construct. Um, mm-hmm. But this particular family, when they found out that the two of us were together, this son of theirs, who was their beloved son, let me just say, like their apple of the family eye, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when this came out, suddenly he was, under internal attack 
in the family for his decision to date me across the racial line. And it led to him literally being thrown out of the house, rendered homeless, wow. you know, for a time. I don't know if I share this in the book. My family actually took him in oh, for wow. a while. Mm-hmm. But, but that's just an example that we can be driven by some idea about, um, you know, sort of uh, police in the love line, if you will, right? <laughs> what, where, where somebody's affection can really go. Some idea about that can lead us to such an act as making our own kin, our own, you know, children mm. homeless. Like that to me um, was one of the experiences that led me to really be curious about how, it, what are the other ways? Heather McGee, to just name another author who's been writing about this, published a book um, recently called um, The Sum of Us, which takes as this thesis this very point. Like, when we look at what's happening, right, the need to then ex- ex- explain and invite reflection on how racism is harming everybody. And from her perspective as a public policymaker, right, she was looking at, well, what is happening with health care? Why is it that we see people or how do we see people voting against their own personal interests, against taking up, you know, some sort of more publicly supported and available health care, that which we all as human beings again, in recognition of the basic core needs of humanity for care and support for flourishing and healing when mm-hmm. we're ill. We all need healthcare. And yet we see people voting against it disproportionately in Southern states with high proportions of Brown and Black people. We, so we see these correlations that seem to be related to our historical patterns of, of racial divide. Same thing with education. We underinvest in education, public education. We have been pulling money out of public education since desegregation. Right. Right. Mm. So this, these are just some of the ways. So we have these systemic and public ways that are really, really voting rights. We're seeing it again. All of our voting rights are being threatened because the dominant uh, history you know, sort of the dominant forces that that kind of resist multiracial and multicultural democracy are reacting to the past generations post-civil rights gains facilitated facilitated by the Voting Rights Act and all sorts of different things. But we're seeing a backlash to the gains uh, that have been accomplished in the direction of greater participation in voting and more positive, let's, from my perspective, um, outcomes from more free and fair elections. And so now all of us are vulnerable to having folks tossing our votes because our signature doesn't match up some version of what it should be. So those are just some of the ways that we do all suffer systemically, publicly on the one hand, um, personally, interpersonally, maybe even in our families on the other, within our own selves, we can just invite inquiry. How have we suffered, no matter what our background? Mm. And, and I just want to also add that when it comes to the part that people of color suffer, you know, I've been looking at these issues for many years and a student of our history, you know, growing up in the South and going to school at University of Virginia. I mean, 
writing about reparations way back in the day, my first public paper, you know, back in 92 or whenever, right? I have been looking at these issues for a long time, but I am coming back to a deep consideration of the trauma mm-hmm. that people of color have internalized and often are tempted and do um, play out within our own communities. You know, my own experience, um, as I write about in my book, I am a child of what, you know, now we call these adult, uh, you know, survivors of childhood traumas, right? I had multiple childhood traumas in my own personal experience. Um, not just those that are legacies in a systemic way of the histories that we're talking about, right? My family growing, being comprised of people who were working class, poor, um, living in, you know, my father was from Mississippi, my mom from North Carolina, um, struggling to get a decent education and working class job. My dad goes into the military and suffers as a result of that. Mm. Stepdad suffer, suffered as a result of that, became alcoholics, right? So alcoholism, um, abuse in the household, domestic violence against my mom and then abuse of the children in the household, myself Mm -hmm. included. So there are so many ways that we play out these traumatic legacies in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own homes. And I want to just name that because I think an important part of what I hope is the takeaway of bringing mindfulness to bear in the service of racial justice is what I often refer to as the personal justice call. Yes, yes. That part that's about, let's take care of this person, not in a selfish way. Understand the difference between selfishness and self-care and really seeing caring, you know, as Audre Lorde has said, as Angela Davis has said, it is an act of resistance and um, really the first approximation of what justice looks like to me. How do I love this body and these bodies that I'm with in ways that can really help disrupt all of the messages that have come handed down to us through the generations that our lives don't matter. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's interesting because you said so much that I was like, yes, yes. And I, it, it it made me think of another book. We're going to talk about all these books. (laughs) Uh, My grandmother's hands where there's a it's devoted to trauma, racialized trauma and mm-hmm. metabolizing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And metabolizing that trauma, right? right. It's the importance of and using mindfulness practices, but just being mm-hmm. in tune with the trauma because, you know, you had a quote in your book from Titnat Han, where he talked about the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot to be done in society, he says, work against war, social injustice, and so on. But first, we have to come back to our own territory and make sure that peace and harmony are reigning there, our own territory, which I yes. think is exactly what you were talking about. Yes. Because we can't do anything for anyone <laughs> unless we're actually uh, attuned to what's happening within, which I think is like the mic drop of the entire <laughs> isn't it? You know, I mean, we can't, we we can barely do anything. And we run the risk of the things that we try to do at our highest and best. If it, if, if we haven't done our own work, right. If we haven't done our own 
you know, coming home to, to making peace within this territory. Mm-hmm. We do run the risk of working for some version of justice or, you know, the good that has embedded in it, you know, some of these ways that we can transmit our unhealed woundedness out and allow it to infuse whatever we might be trying to offer in the world. And so for me, it's like, it's also, I'll say a little bit, there is a little bit of selfishness in this. I said, it's not selfish, <laughs> okay. there is a little bit, which is about like, you know, you don't want to have to wait until whatever that distant day, like we're fighting for new laws and new policies and this in our neighborhood. And we're going to keep organizing, building co- coalitions and working for change. Mm-hmm. And some of us, we've been able to see some of the benefits of some of those things. And then we see the backlash and we get ex- frustrated and we have to keep at it. I think the one of the important aspects of personal justice and self, self-care, what it does for me is it, it's about saying, as Alice Walker, to mention another author right, and like, teacher, right, says, <laughs> don't miss the color purple, right? She mm-hmm. really meant that. Mm-hmm. as a mindful social justice in a way kind of message. Like no matter what we're going through, no matter how much we have suffered, and we know her heroine in that book, Seeley, was, you know, right, in that intersectional way, mm-hmm. suffering all kinds of abuse, legacies of the interlocking, patriarchy, racist, capitalist, all of that, right? And yet that basic message, even as we are healing and working to make the world a better place, make room for joy. Don't miss the color purple, right? Mm -hmm. Don't miss the gift of being alive. And to me, if as we are doing our justice work, we are, you know, burning the candle at both ends and like getting ourselves completely flat out exhausted and burned out and, 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 conflict and arguing with everybody mm-hmm. you know when our relationships are faltering mm-hmm. something is amiss right something profound is amiss so bringing justice home first and foremost is really 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 i think important and it is not to say therefore we don't have to do the other work no, right it's the both and it's the both yes and. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about uh, teachers like Adrienne Marie Brown, who does a lot around pleasure. And I can just tell you for myself, Black woman, single parent, lots of things. And I thought my job was survival for many years. Like, I just need to get through the day. But really what I've learned in my most kind of last five years is Mm -hmm. it's so important to have joy. It's so important to aim for thriving. The intention be thriving, joy, purpose, following your bliss. Yes. And that's my mantra now. (laughs) So, and the activism, it's still a priority for me, but I do recognize I'm not able to really be there for anyone if I can't be there for myself and have some joy. So true. And joy can come in the activism. Yes. If if we are, if this is our orientation, right, Mm -hmm. then we realize like working side by side towards something, even when we don't always win, Mm -hmm. but we learn that we can see from, I know from my own experience, working with people to try to make a positive difference somewhere, there's joy in that. And we need to see that, don't miss that. 
Yes. Yes. I love that. And there's something you said, you keep saying these remarkable things. And so I I wanted to just stop for a second uh, on another, what I call mic drop moment is uh, this idea of race as a social construct. And I'll, I'll say why, because I am pretty, I'm I'm pretty grown. I've been around (laughs) for a while and I've only just in the last few years really gotten that race is a social construct. I've just really gotten that there isn't anything scientific or biological or physiological about being racialized black, being racialized white. We have different culture. We have different cultures, cultural experiences Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, And I lift that up. Um, And there is nothing that separates us truly. No. Uh, And I wanted you to say something more about that because when I got that, my whole life changed. I was like, oh, so I actually can walk in the world in a different way. So I wanted to just (laughs) have you comment. It is, you know, it is. Thank you so much. That is a, it's a question. It's a, it is a statement that when I make and I write about it, you know, I'm often met on the one hand with people that are, sometimes it'll be like, what do you mean? Explain that more. And, um, but often it'll be people who will say, yes, I've heard that, but really they don't know what it means and they don't really believe it. (laughs) And they'll finally at some point have the, whatever it is to say, can we really talk about that part? Cause I really don't know about that. And I'll say that, you know, it, it is, it is a, so, you know, the, the, where, what I'm drawing on when I make that statement is, you know, research, um, the, the kind of, um, human anthropological, uh, social science community is, um, the majority, there are always detractors, right? There are always, there's always going to be people who kind of want to go back to this, what I'm going to just say, the pseudoscience of race that, that provided a basic illusory, uh, but appealing kind of hard sciencey seeming foundation for racism. Okay. We had, um, you know, many different pseudoscientists of race um, from Europe who starting in, you know, the, in, in, in earnest in the 17th and 18th centuries, you know, writing about these five different racial branches of humankind. Now, mind you, these scholars often had never traveled outside of Europe, but they had heard stories told about, you know, from the explorers and the early, um, uh, you know, settlers and, and, and colonists coming back with tales of the types of humankind that they'd seen. And, you know, these scholars often drawing on the work they were doing, looking at, you know, botany, looking at plant life, you know, took some of those um, ways of categorizing and describing describing, um, uh, life into descriptions about humankind that have been debunked by scientists. Mm -hmm. We know that we can share blood, we can mate across, (laughs) right? human, humankind of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the genetic, the geneticists, the DNA specialists have, have also confirmed, right, the, the degree to which 
we are all really one human family. There is, you know, obviously we have genetic variation. That's the beauty of humanity. Mm-hmm. The what I sometimes use the phrase the ten thousand flowers, right? We we are we we are all these beautifully unique creatures with all different shades and hair textures and eye shapes and this and that. But fundamentally, are we one species? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yet, wherever we are and around the world and in different cultures, we've constructed ways of grouping, categorizing folks. And in the U.S. and in other often Western nations, we've made a lot of this idea of race. But other cultures haven't made as much of the idea of race, but they have often something else, some other thing that it might be religion. It might be, you know, something about you know, uh, where people live and, um, you know, so there, the, the, the sociologists tell us that, him, you know, we often categorize each other and use those categories to rank each other in terms of the value and worth somehow. Mm-hmm. And so from a sociological standpoint, it's very common that we organize and then rank um, and we kind of make up categories as necessary to support that in our culture. And um, the, the more fixed categories where we see this type of, by the way, this type of categorizing age and gender, but even gender we know is much more fluid than we've given to believe. And age, of course, we are all going to go through a spectrum if we're lucky from yeah. young to old. But those, but again, across the world, you'll see different values being placed on people of different age groups and different genders. And then depending on where you are, you see something called race being described, defined, all of this ideological work being placed in, right, in service of what? Usually some form of oppression. In our Mm -hmm. culture, it was to justify the variations of oppression, slavery, land clearing, by which we, yes, ended up on places like, right, the formerly baloney land that I am on right now in San Francisco, right? So to justify exclusionary policies against Asian American people who for a time in the, you know, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century were deemed to be a threat to the white working class in California, so much so that we ended up with all kinds of exclusionary policies. And then the legacies of those were sort of at the foundation of what led to our being able to do internment against Japanese Americans mm-hmm. in World War II. So the different, I mean, how race has led to kind of oppression varies. But if we don't understand that each society, cultural, geographic moment that we're in, we're tempted to continue the work of creating and recreating and reifying, right? Making more fixed than is true, than is scientifically true, certainly. These ideas that we have about racial difference. When we become aware that there is this, that we're doing this, we are constructing these things. Then sometimes people say, well then, what, then okay, then that means race isn't real, then we really don't, we almost have, have to talk about racism. Oh, that is not <laughs> right because just because race is not <laughs> biologically real doesn't mean right. it is not it's very socially real. right it's very very much still a feature of our social lives and so we can both be looking at becoming more conscious of how we are participating or not in reifying the categories and how we can disrupt that a bit 
we can recognize multiraciality in and amongst all of us much more than we have been given to do in the past without at the same, but at the same time, I think it's important for us to figure out how to recommit to doing the work of ending racial injustice. Right. Looking at racism when it shows up, looking at bias when it shows up, naming it, looking at our demographics and our spaces. And from that place of like, you know, a little bit of an audit, like where are we doing well? Where could we be doing better? Right. Looking at, you know, what's going on and what we might need to do differently to bring about more racial justice and equity where we are. So it's that both and it's like mm-hmm. both understand it's a construct. Let's minimize it and let's minimize the temptation to organize our whole lives around it. And by minimize, I don't mean to, you know, that we disavow that we have cultures that we respect or cultures in the world that we honor. It is that we want to minimize this sort of um, inherited notion that these are fixed ideas. And then we can choose how we want to be in relationship to projects of racial justice and equality. Um, And because lastly, I just want to say, while the sociologists are clear, all across the world, there's a temptation amongst humankind to categorize and rank. Right. Mm-hmm. There is at the same time across the world, a tendency, a countervailing tendency against this effort to rank and dominate. There, are, there is this tendency I alluded to before toward altruism, toward mm-hmm. egalitarianism, toward a narration about public love and human dignity that undergirds this idea of universal human rights. So wherever we are, it's like this sort of struggle. <laughs> how, how do we want to be a part of the egalitarian impulse to a world where we can all flourish and thrive, actually? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to be a part of, you know, the old story of some of us matter more than others? And so we're all, I think, called to choose how we want to be in relationship to these longstanding moral challenges that travel with the dynamics of racial racialization in our time. Yeah. I mean, and again, so much there to unpack and to, to, and to uh, like discuss one thing that as you were talking about race being a social construct, and as we were talking about, this doesn't mean that we don't deal with race. Like, even though we understand this and know this, uh, some of us, you know, it doesn't mean that our society doesn't have this racialized uh, underpinning tone it's not everywhere around us, right? And so one of the things that struck me too in the book is when you talked about the fact that um, the mindfulness practices alone are not enough to support the work of racial justice, that there is an importance of learning the history of understanding, you know, what, who and what came before us in order to create something different going forward. And It made me think of uh, what I perceive as an attack on critical race theory. Um, It made me think of recent legislation that has passed in eight states and new legislation being introduced in 20 states. And I wondered what your thoughts might be on um, the fact that I think the legislation is trying to write the discomfort out of our history (laughs) um, is asking and, and everything in your book feels to me like being with the discomfort, Mm -hmm. being with the pain, uh, being even with, you know, as as someone who's racialized Black, you know, being with my own, um, the trauma that has has been part of my own legacy. So all of us being with the discomfort takes us further is my 
kind yes. of takeaway and wondered if you had any thoughts yeah. about that. Oh, Damali, I mean, there's so much. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I do think um, we are due as a culture and maybe humanity, humankind is due for this kind of adulting process <laughs> whereby we can more deeply stay with difficult things and do hard things together, you know? Um, and yeah, my book is very much about finding that within myself, that the kind of leaning into mindfulness practices as a support for looking at what I need to do. That's difficult, right? And sort of staying, you know, turning toward, this is where my term of color insight comes in, right? Rather than being colorblind and turning away from these issues, but actually saying, I want to know, I want to understand, I want to see, I want to be able to sit with, I want to work with uh, race and racism as it's showing up in my life, right? I don't want to give it more attention or more air than it needs, but I also don't want to ignore it when it, when it does need to be addressed. How can I develop within myself the wherewithal to do that? And, you know, it isn't easy and you're absolutely right. I think one of the ways we're seeing this backlash that I alluded to before is, you know, currently showing up in a kind of a backlash against what is called critical race theory, which as a law professor, <laughs> uh, one of the people who studied and was so inspired by the original critical race theory writings that emerged from law in the late eight, uh, 1980s, um, 1990s, and then were picked up in uh, masters of education, graduate programs in education, and and then became you know this other thing. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I have an understanding of critical race theory that um, that dates back to and draws on the originators of it. Right. And of course, I know from all of that that the effort there was simply to provide support for learning about the aspects of our history and um, including our legal history that help us understand why we are still so caught up in a politics, politics and practices of racialization and racial, racial hierarchy. Why, why, we, why racism is still a feature of our lives. How are we going to understand, understand that problem better and don't we need to understand that problem better if we're going to do law and policy that disrupts it rather than enacting law and policy that simply, as one of the early critical race theorists, a white racialized woman, uh, her name is Riva Segal, writes, we want to avoid preserving the status quo of racial hierarchy by transforming it, right, which mm. is a pattern she saw. We seem to be preserving it by transforming. We transform from slavery to you know, peonage and then, you know, and, and black codes and segregation. But what stayed the same? The basic outlines of the hierarchy and the way they feed racial capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like that's been our history since enslavement, right? How do we use the ideology of race to amass wealth here, disadvantage people there, maintain an ability to move capitalism and then move the political economy the particular kind of democracy infused with a, a lot of um, 
autocratic leanings for certain people that we don't want to vote, right? How do we, mm-hmm. this thing, that this, this kind of democracy that has accommodated racism since, our, since the founding, since the constitution, critical race theorists have been saying, we need to understand that better. And we need to wake up to some of the ways that now in this era of supposed race neutrality, right? That followed the disestablishment, I'm quoting, air quoting, of segregation. Like we feel like we went through a period, Martin Luther King came, we marched, we had the Voting Rights Act, we ended segregation. And yet I have my students come to me and say, wait, when did we end segregation? I went to an entirely segregated school. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. We look at the data that show us that schools are more segregated across the country in the South today, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. than they were during the civil rights movement. <laughs> we look at the data that shows that our neighborhoods remain segregated and wealth, uh, um, the accumulation of wealth continues to be disparate in terms of you know, racialized groups. So we have, in other words, a lot of evidence if we look at the history of what the critical race scholars are pointing to that suggests we need to be skeptical of claims that race neutrality, that we just say, we're not talking about race. Right. That means we're not racist. They're like, no, look at your history. Obviously there is this tendency in law and policy to actually preserve the status quo hierarchies by transforming it. And so let's look at how that happened in the law and how the law allowed it um, when we move from slavery to debt peonages, peonage and black codes and segregation, let's look at how the law accommodated the hierarchy all through that. And now let's look at how the law might be accommodating the hierarchy right now, even though we're in the race neutral period, um, technically. That's right. what critical race theory was all about. And it, and it required that you look at history. Like it just said, how can you understand any of this if you're not willing to at least know how we got here and know the history that's often not taught. And there's so much of that. Oh yeah. Yes. It's meditation (laughs) and it's study and it's being in communities where you can have conversations like this. These are all components of color insight and working well, I think, to injustice. And, you know, something popped up for me as you were talking too, is that I think the fact that we don't learn about this history can be so, we can have this idea that racism is something that is just uh, an issue in the South. We, we can have this, this idea that, you know, in California, we're so progressive and liberal. And I remember years ago learning about, for example, the ways certain neighborhoods were constructed, like Palo Alto versus East Palo Alto. And that, you know, literally Black people were not allowed to purchase homes in Palo Alto, which is something that when we look around today, things didn't just happen, you know, like race, they were constructed, it was a design. And I feel like learning about that helps us undo that. It's the learning and and getting close to that, that helps us say, well, we won't do that again. Um, So exactly. Learning is an allied discipline of meditation. That's the phrase that I learned, inherited and use here. So becoming more conscious of how history is repeating itself, how our neighborhoods were constructed around racism. Palo Alto, heck, the house I live in here in San Francisco. Right. So, you know, this neighborhood was a neighborhood where those um, 
restrictive, racially restrictive covenants that you talk about having been necessary to form Palo Alto and East Palo Alto. Racially restrictive covenants for a feature of San Francisco and most places mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, in the U.S. and were, you know, at, were a feature running with the deeds of our homes and even through sales and transactions, even after the Supreme Court disallowed them and disavowed them. Neighborhoods wanted segregation for a long time. It was true of this very neighborhood where I am in, in San Francisco, uh, where people like Willie Mays, not far from here actually, um, was one of the first people to desegregate and then had neighbors you know, um, really harassing him until he and his wife moved out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our neighborhoods, the lives we live today are infused by these histories more than we realize. So yes, developing a commitment to, you know, pausing, bringing in the ability to stop, notice what's happening in our bodies to help us heal from all of the ways we can be feeling challenged by the pain of this, these histories, um, triggered by the legacies of oppression that we see right around us right now, microaggressions impacting us in our schools, in our workplaces, bringing mindfulness to bear to help us work through all of that and to find our people that we want to work with, whatever they look like, whatever their backgrounds, because there are people, there have always been people of all racialized backgrounds trying to fight to disrupt oppression. We need to find each other and we need to be able to work together. So meditation can help us with the difficulty of that. But we do also need the commitment to study, to learn, and to be in conversations like this. Building communities of learning and practice is really another piece of this as well. Thank you. And you know what? This reminds me, I really want to ask a question that takes us kind of from the macro down into the micro uh, with you as a professor in a classroom. Um, in your book, you share a couple really, for me, eye-opening stories about the ways that you make mistakes, mm-hmm. the ways that you navigate um, the challenges that you might uh, be met with. And so There are a couple stories, one in which you call one of your Latina students by someone else's name. And you kind of in what I felt when I read it was like you kind of double down and did it again and then realize, oh, I've I've made this mistake. And I thought to myself, as you described how you took that in, where you grounded, you acknowledged, you apologized. It made me think of all the faculty members that we have, all the teachers that we have in our community and, you know, moments that they may misstep. And I just thought that was so relatable and vulnerable, actually, for you to share. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you navigate your potential to harm in moments like that. Yeah, thank you. That, you know, again, it's a challenge for all of us to try to, um, you know, minimize the harm that any one of us might do. Because again, we've all imbibed not just, you know, stories of who matters and who doesn't and, and limited histories, right? Histories that have like, you know, kind of made certain people the victors and the exceptions and then other people constantly denigrated, right? We, we've been miseducated. So we're working from miseducation, let's name that. And then our brains as human brains, right? We know, right? The social psychologists tell us. We all um, develop these schemas, stereotypes, 
right? We move through the world placing things in categories based on our experiences, based on information we've been told to kind of give us shortcuts so that we can navigate the world more quickly. I have a scheme in my head we all do for a chair, right? And talk about this quite often because that's a kind of a common thing. It's like, you know what a chair is. You don't, every time you see something that looks like a chair, have to stop, recon it, figure out what is that. You know it's a chair. If you're tired, you can sit in it. The problem is that we have schemas for people too that are not unlike this. Hmm. And in whereas it works for a chair, we don't want to overinvest in investigating what a chair is. We, with human beings, we do damage when we put them in categories and then treat them from that place. But the thing is, our brains do this, you know? So in the story that I share, it's me having uh, called, yes, a Latinx female student by one name. I, I, you know, not use the actual names in the book, right? But I think I used, mm-hmm. maybe the student's name was uh, Rosarita, but I called her Maria. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I, in the book, I talk about how, yes, I called her Maria. Then I called her Maria again. I'm like, why is she not responding? And she's like, cause that's not my name. And I, we had been in conversations and in class for months by, by that point. So it wasn't that we just met, right? And she and I had many one-on-one conversations. And so it was very kind of embarrassing. Number one, you never want to mess up anybody's name. But it was obvious to me that it wasn't like I had called her Mary, right? Mm-hmm. Or some other name. It was a name that had a kind of Latina spin to it, mm-hmm. which in, in, to my own mind, if I'm honest in a way that is embarrassing to admit, you know, kind of revealed a little bit of the way my brain was like reaching for, like, in other words, recognizing that she was of this category that I have. And, 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 and while I hope and pray that my category for Latina has nothing but beautiful, wonderful things, the, the risk is that all of us, when we have these categories, we imbibe all the kinds of stereotypes and the trainings we have. And the risk is that it can impact how we interact, receive, valorize, respect, uplift, listen to people in these different categories. So of course, I therefore, you know, like everybody else, want to work to look at the content of my categories, as you know, was the title of a kind of an important article on this very thing, this very thing that like we're all walking around operating from these often underappreciated hidden cognitive uh, dynamics. We're all, we're all moving through the world having to work with this. So we all need to work to disrupt our biases as a means of demonstrating how we want to bring mindfulness to bear on minimizing racial harm in the world. So yeah, I paused, noticed that this was at stake, noticed that other people were watching. My students were watching. They were being impacted by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and apologized, right? And I've told the story before, and some people have said, "Why? Well, what? People are too sensitive. You know, our, we're getting older. We are going to mess, mess up people. It's like, well, maybe that is true. It's not, you know, it is true that it's hard sometimes to remember names, and we meet hundreds of students, and we could say all those things and refuse to acknowledge that actually somebody has been wounded by what we said. Mm-hmm. And so the invitation is to say, yeah, you might have a way of understanding your intent, <clears throat> my intention but I also understand the impact. And I wanna mine that gap 
between my intention and mm-hmm. the impact. And that's what mindfulness is going to be. Now, thank you so much. One more I have to ask. You know, th- this thing of trigger, of being, of feeling triggered, I think is so real in this work as well. And in the book, you talk about downregulating your reactivity when feeling triggered. And I thought to myself, I have practiced mindfulness for a a while now and still struggle sometimes uh, with this. And so I wondered if you could even give us a high level, a sense of what the steps are when you find yourself in that trigger moment to manage the reactivity. Yes, I can. So I would say one acronym to use here that I use in my book too and talk about is RAIN. It's a teaching acronym that summarizes what mindfulness is meant to offer, right? R-A-I-N. So somebody says something that's triggering, recognizing R, the first letter of the RAIN acronym, just recognize, oh my goodness, I can feel the tightness in my chest, the something, you know, the stone at the in my belly or the you know, the flush of heat as I'm getting like really angry just that this person said this. I'm looking for somebody to look at and be like, did we just hear this? So recognize that we're feeling some triggering response. A, except for the moment, that's what's happening. A story that I wrote about was when, you know, in an example from my classroom, a student said, when talking about writing a paper for a, a class I'm going to write about the Rodney King beating and I'm going to write that I think it was deserved. And the student Mm. happened to actually be AAPI, an Asian American, Asian American heritage student, uh, born and raised in California, Southern Cal. Um, And really just put out there that he was going to take this, make this argument. And, And when it was said, it really hit me and I could feel like, you know, part of me wanted to react, Mm. but I was able to draw on my mindfulness and notice, wow, you are, you're at risk here of acting out of alignment with your values as a professor, as a person privileged to hold that responsibility on behalf of everybody, including this one student. I, you know, felt myself drawing on mindfulness to accept, all right, I'm feeling triggered, but I want to investigate this. I'm feeling a lot of different things, but how can I, um, but, but I'm also able to see and then choose how to respond rather than react. And so mm-hmm. R, recognize, A, accept, I investigate, well, what's happening and what can I choose if I'm at my highest and best in terms of how to respond right here and now? And then N, R-A-I-N, do all of that with as little attachment or identification, non-attachment, non-identification. You're not trying to tell a story of like, I'm this way, that student's that way. It's like, that was happening in the moment. I've moved through it. I might have subsequent conversations with that student. I might do something else. But in that moment, I navigated it drawing on mindfulness. Mm. Wow. I love that story in particular <laughs> um, because I'm like, Ooh, what does she do? How does she handle it? So thank you. Thank you for the example. Um, I do want to um, close us out with one final, well, a thank you to you, deep vows of gratitude to you, because this has been such, for me, an illuminating conversation. I'm sure for everyone in our audience, they have learned something. There has been a gift in this conversation for each and every person. 
And I wanted to just close out on uh, the principle of Ubuntu. Yeah, and I hope yeah. I said that right. Yeah. The kinship, the connection. Because I think yeah. when we delve into such sensitive territory, it can be hard to see that kinship. Yes. But I, I wondered if you could just yes. share something about those principles yeah. and if there's a practice that you want to um, connect with that so that we can just be in the space of mindful connection. Mm, thank you. So Ubuntu, some of you may be familiar with it. And if you're just hearing that word for the first time, you know, I learned this through immigrants from South Africa. And I visited South Africa and talked to people there about it. It's a particular philosophy that translates as best we, as we might in English to um, recognizing our common humanity with this phrase, I am because you are. And because you are, I am. And in other words, it's really recognizing our interdependence as human beings. And so I, in my book, I offer a practice inspired by Ubuntu consciousness, right? This practice, which starts with a kind of willingness to turn toward other human beings. And we can do this, whether someone knows we're doing it or not. We might find ourselves, this is a practice you can draw on silently if you're having a difficult moment with someone who you feel like you're going to disagree with, but you're trying to find common ground, right? This isn't like somebody is trying to bring out violence against you, but that you're just disagreeing and around these issues and you're trying to find common ground. You might pause and just reflect, like, just like me, this person wants to be understood and sometimes is misunderstood, right? And that's a way of saying we all as human beings go through the world, sometimes trying to be connecting, trying to have someone understand, being missed, and so it's looking at in the eyes of a person and saying, and sometimes we do this as a practice. We pause, we say it out loud. Just like me, this person has been misunderstood in life. And you look at the person, you know it's true. And you look into each other's eyes and it's like, oh my gosh, tears can come to your eyes. Just like me, this person struggles sometimes to, to be the best they can be and just feels themselves missing their mark right? We all struggle. Uh, so these mm -hmm. kinds of, this just like me is another kind of compassion building practice. Just like me, this person has known discrimination. Just like me, this person has also known love, right? So that's a piece of it. But also, I am because you are. And because you are, I am. Literally, we're in this conversation because you all showed up. Um, I'm here with Damali and able to have this conversation because of the questions you asked, the beautiful energy you brought, we are all benefiting, whether here in this conversation live or listening to this later, because we have been here together and we have been shaped in some way, touched in some way by what has arisen only because we happen to be here together. So that is something that is really, really beautiful to remember. For me, breathing reminds me, taking a conscious breath, I didn't create the air that I breathe, but I depend on many human beings that I know and don't know for a, a quality of air that's safe enough that I can breathe it without dying of air pollution today, right? In other words, we live in an environment which as we live and breathe is constantly reminding us who 
pick the beans that made the coffee that we drank to wake up this morning, right? We are always relying on human beings' efforts in ways that we don't realize. So bringing compassion to the awareness that we are all struggling, we're all in a world, working together in a world where we are um, actually cooperating more than we realize. Think of the many ways that just in driving through a town, you avoided accidents because everybody did just enough. I mean, sometimes there are accidents, <laughs> right. but most often, right? We, right? So yeah. we are much more cooperating than we realize. Remember that. And we are impacting another, each other in ways seen and not seen. So thank you. Uh, in the spirit of Ubuntu, I see you is another piece of that practice. Mm-hmm. Rather than just goodbye or hello, I see you. And I see you. Damali and I thank you so much for your presence. See you, Rhonda. Thank you so much. I really have enjoyed this conversation with you again, and it's been rich and generative. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.